Welcome everyone. Our guest today is Eddie Travia, founder and CEO at Coincilium. So Eddie, you are in the crypto space since 2013. Coincilium is a blockchain and open finance focused venture operator. In 2015, you, you guys basically did an IPO, which was the first blockchain company to do an IPO. And you're now focused on supporting what you call open finance. So in this episode, we'll talk about why Bitcoin and open finance. We'll talk about NFTs, the crypto minefield, and we'll end up with a few more personal questions. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and turn on the notification to never miss a single episode. And also keep in mind that nothing shared or discussed here is financial advice. So Eddie, someone would say that you are an experienced, successful, yet pretty laid back entrepreneur. So why don't we start with some context about your background? So what are the key turning points of your life that define who you are today? Okay, good question. Thank you, Kevin, for, for having me here. Um, well, I think the first key turning point in my both professional and, and personal life has been um, moving to China back in 2004. I had visited Asia before uh, as early as uh, 1999 for, for my work. And then when I moved to China, you know, I was impressed by the uh, entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial spirit of the whole, you know, of the country, of the, of the people I met there. Um, and that was uh, an awakening, of course, to Asia as well in general, where I've, you know, I've been staying and living now uh, since then. Um, so that was that was very interesting. I was working for a private equity uh, fund, um, and uh, through different uh, meetings, to different uh, encounters, um, I met a French engineer who introduced me to Bitcoin. Of course, later, in about 2012, and that was quite interesting because uh, at first I think like everyone, especially at the time, I was very skeptical. <laughs> you know, why? What? What is this? What? What, what exactly? Where does it come from? Etc. So that was another turning point, of course, is when I um, started, you know, let's say uh, learning about Bitcoin, which is where everybody starts from. Um, also opens people's eyes to monetary uh, systems, you know, let's say economics in general. Um, and in 2013, um, I decided with a couple of friends to actually help companies, help entrepreneurs who want to go in that space. So the idea was not to accumulate coins, uh, but the idea was to help uh, doers, people who were making something. And so I would say that's kind of the major latest turning point in my life um, at this at this stage, yes. So you've been in, living in Asia for almost 20 years now. You, you mentioned China and what you've seen there. What did you see that really kind of caught your attention and like made, made you really want to stay there. And that was very different from, for example, Europe, Europe, where you come from. Well, I, I, I saw a level of, uh, activity, uh, that actually reminded me one other country, which is the U S really. I mean, I felt the spirit of, um, uh, you know, hardworking people and people with big dreams and no, you know, uh, real drive, I would say real drive. Of course, 2004 was a world of opportunities. You know, we, we uh, as part of my job there, I was meeting uh, people who created companies like, you know, ba Baidu, Alibaba, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about companies that are going to become major, you know, uh, major players on, in their markets. Uh, 
But apart from that, hundreds of, you know, smaller company owners, extremely uh, entrepreneurial and uh, breaking through a lot of barriers at the time. So um, I would say this reminded me a bit of the internet years, uh, but actually, to be clear, um, the early years of Bitcoin reminded me a bit more of that. So there's been a bit of reminiscing because I was... In my late twenties, during the internet years, uh, let's say ninety-five to to two thousand, and uh, I was, you know, fascinated by by that, by by this first wave of let's say um, dot com entrepreneurial entrepreneurship, and and I think China and later Bitcoin reminded me of that as well. What are, what are the key kind of similarities and also key differences that you basically saw between early Bitcoin years and early internet years? Yeah, I think a, a, a mass, uh, massive innovation, people taking chances with, you know, crazy concepts and some of them became very successful and some of them, of course, faded, faded away. Uh, so there is this energy to try new things. Um, the fact that your entrepreneurs are not scared to go there, you know, it's a bit like a, a last frontier kind of, kind of uh, technology. Um, with the internet, people may not recall, but there were a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of pressure from institutions, from government authorities to actually not go there. You know, there, were, there was already in, in the internet years, a regulatory, regulatory issues. Of course, not all of them dealt with money like mm -hmm. and fintech like Bitcoin, but there were regulatory issues at the time. And there were companies like, for example, Skype, you know, companies like that, which actually went through barriers. For example, they went through the uh, telecom uh, regulations, right? So. I, when, when we first started helping entrepreneurs in 2013, we had the same issues, but of course, Bitcoin was sometimes seen as a money, sometimes seen as a commodity, et cetera. So there were different layers of regulatory issues, which are still not solved today, by the way, mo most of those. <laughs> and, and, uh, so, so I felt this, you know, I felt the fact that they were fighting, um, uh, against some uh, establishment or legacy companies, so there was this kind of uh, you know David versus Goliath kind of kind of uh, similarity, and the internet years were the same. You know, you had for example Amazon. I remember very clearly downloading um, pages of affiliate programs of Amazon in the very early years, maybe '95, and. For everyone, this was a minor company. You know, it was not something that was going to 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 do what it what it did. So. And, and Bitcoin was the same, you know, most of the exchanges started very small. I remember in, um, I think May or June, 2013, Coinbase was raising $6 million, you know, I, I, um, and there, there was a, a fund in China that was looking at it. That's why I was, you know, um, aware of, of it. So yeah, it started quite small, but of course, building on the internet, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, I would say moved faster mm -hmm. and became bigger, quicker. So 2012, you have your friend that kind of shows you this Bitcoin thing, and but it takes you a few months or a year until you make kind of months. like the leap. A so like months. what happens in your mind during these few months, mm. like since the first time you encounter this kind of weird Bitcoin thing, and then mm. a few months later you say, I'm just going to leave everything and focus 100% on that. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I so the first thing when you hear about Bitcoin, I would say, especially at the time when it's really not a, a mainstream thing at all, and very few people have heard about it, it may sound like a scam. It may sound like 
something which shouldn't have value. You know, this is, a, I remember every time we were doing meetups, that was the first question was, what is it backed by? You know, by there is no value, et cetera. Uh, yeah, and then, and then we explain, you know, but so at first this, this were my, this was my instinct. My instinct was, wow, you know, this could be dangerous because it could be a scam and then, and then people never get back their money or maybe you cannot sell Bitcoin. You know, the market was, uh, probably empty Gox, the main one. And then a few started to come up, but it was a very, it, it seemed very risky. I think what attracted me to it was, first of all, you know, we're talking about money. So, you know, it's kind of the, the core, um, the core element of our society, of our economy. Right. So that was interesting because, you know, it's kind of, um, let's say when you, when you're an entrepreneur and you, and you build something, uh, you have different objectives, but going to disrupt money. I mean, it sounded kind of both crazy and very enticing at, at the time. Uh, one thing that attracted me to being active in Bitcoin was also the fact that uh, very few people were openly doing it. So when I went on LinkedIn in 2013, maybe, I don't know, April or, or, or May, and I started saying, you know, I'm doing something in Bitcoin. I get a lot of people contacting me because they were not daring to say it openly because it still felt a bit like an underground kind of uh, activity. And that was great. I mean, in the summer 2013, I was speaking to five or six Bitcoin founders or Bitcoin startup founders every day. So from, you know, uh, Latin America to Japan to, you know, Europe, it was great. It was quite easy to, to access this, this very nice community. So yeah, I think, I think the kind my reflection was really around money and helping as i said you know helping entrepreneurs to grow in that space so so how did you understand back then that the core concept of bitcoin was around basically money and fiat currency devaluation and store of value i mean mm -hmm. speculative mm -hmm. because now it's kind of i mean since a few years it's kind of easy because uh, there's this uh this guy saved in uh, Amos, who did an amazing job at mm -hmm. writing a book to explain yeah. to people kind of simply what Bitcoin is. And I think about 80% of the book is actually not even on Bitcoin, it's about on the evolution of money and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So basically people can go and turn to something to understand that. But back in 2013 or 2012, like how does one even understand that that's the key concept? Well, this, I mean, to be clear, these concepts were around then. Uh, you just needed a bit, maybe more time. And yes, there was not, there were not a lot of books, <laughs> probably no, no books at the time really dealing about directly about Bitcoin. But I would say in Bitcoin talk or in different forums, different meetups, we were meeting, of course, libertarian, you know, because that's uh, at the origin of, of Bitcoin. There were a lot of those, uh, but every time there was a discussion around economy, around monetary system. So I don't, you know, this was out there for sure. And, and as I was saying, the first meetups we were doing were all kind of educational. You know, I spent the first years of basically educating everyone, you know, I met about Bitcoin, like, like most early Bitcoiners were, were doing. I, you know, I was meeting people in a, in a ferry in, in between Hong Kong and China. We we're talking very quickly about Bitcoin and how it can change certain things, economy, et cetera. So that, that was quite clear. You know, if you were reading, you know, for example, Vitalik was writing very well in, um, I think Bitcoin magazine and, mm. and other, other writers there. Yeah. They were talking about this. So it was, you just needed the time. I would say that that's the most important thing is you needed the time to read through and to understand. And that, and that took a few months to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. So 
So what would you say is kind of like the key thing that you understood at the time that most people didn't, and that really made you go into this and, and say again, like, I'm going to focus because I believe in 2013, you said, okay, well, you, you, you focused hundred percent on that, which is yes. very early and kind of see, probably seen as extremely risky for a lot of people back then. So what did you understand that people didn't? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I saw an opportunity, but of course, if today you say, oh, I knew it was going to get that big, you know, probably not. I mean, I, I remember very clearly we organized a, a conference here in Singapore. The first one in, in Asia was called Bitcoin Singapore 2013. And at a friend's place, we organized a pitching um, session, right? Demo. And so there were fans coming. I mean, a few, we're talking about a small event, maybe 20, 20 guests uh, and a few entrepreneurs. And so we, you know, what we, what was very clear at the time is a number of doors that were closed on our face. You know, it's just like, mm. you talk to a lot of institutions, you talk to banks, you talk to consulting firms, you talk to uh, uh, industries, uh, you know, we, we don't, we don't care about Bitcoin because a bit like the internet in the nineties, Bitcoin had already a kind of a controversial image, right? No, we don't want to talk about Bitcoin. This is not regulated money. This is not regulated in any way. It may not be honest or whatever. So we, this was very clear for the, so, so I like that, you know, you know, and, and I think most people at the time liked that it was a challenge, right? The challenge was let's open the doors, you know, let, let's, and that's why we did an IPO really. I mean, we did an IPO because we wanted to prove to everyone that this was legitimate and you can actually do something as regulated and has legal, legally compliant as an IPO. So yeah, that, that's all. I mean, the, 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 the speed then, I mean. Bitcoin became quickly, and, and of course we can say blockchain because then a couple mm. of years later, everybody was kind of antagonizing blockchain and Bitcoin, which may sound funny, but that's what a lot of companies were trying to do. And, um, and that became mainstream quite quickly, I would say a couple of years later. And of course today, I think the market is, is larger than we, we ever expected at the time. Yeah. So what, what were the the key promises of Bitcoin back then? I would say the key promise was exchanging value with no one telling you, you can't basically like, like, uh, the freedom of working in a peer to peer way with money, you know, because obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're talking post 2008, you know, so we're talking full de-risking economy, full you know, compliance departments were starting to swell up to, <laughs> to what they are now. So we're talking about a, a, a time where, uh, money exchanges were becoming, uh, almost de facto, uh, suspicious, right? Mm. I'm sending money to my son, you know, for example, or my, uh, my relatives in France and I have to explain why. And, you know, and I was going to France and I remember, uh, putting a few hundred euros on a bank account was seen as suspicious. You know, it was very difficult to withdraw, very difficult to put a few hundred euros in cash in a, in a bank account. So I think that was a key first promise was I can send you $10,000 worth of Bitcoin from my wallet to your wallet. And there is no, no question asked. I think that was a key, um, the initial key Bitcoin killer app was, was exchanging money. Yeah. So basically this kind of initial promise has come true and has stayed true through time. 
Yes, um, with the yeah, with the caveat that we have we are now fully aware that the the fiat on ramp and off ramp is where the is where actually the the whole KYC and the whole compliance you know has to be done in any way. So so you know sending you a Bitcoin is one thing, but you using it <laughs> uh, and and maybe exchanging it for Singapore dollars or for US dollar is, is more complicated, right? And as you were saying, I think today Bitcoin, in my in my opinion, and maybe that's true by some financial terms, but has become more of a storage of value usage in a way because a lot of Bitcoin is not moving, and it's not because all of them are lost or you know is is I think it's because people are actually storing value with Bitcoin, um, and in terms of payments, obviously today there are you know many alternatives. And even the fiat system has kind of caught up and you have faster instant payment and so forth, very cheap. So so I would say it is still a key one, but I think storage uh, of value has become more and more dominant today. Maybe you want to touch some word on this thing that we call stable coins, mm -hmm. because basically the initial kind of promise of Bitcoin was I'll send money from one place to another. It's going to happen very quickly at kind of fraction of cost of like traditional banking system. Mm. But the key, the key issue was Bitcoin can't be a kind of like speculative store of value, which is volatile by definition and a good means of payment, mm -hmm. which is basically why it is, which is basically why another kind of solution has had to be found. So can you maybe mention or explain a bit on how, Where, where are these stable coins? I mean, what's a stable coin and where are these stable coins kind of from and what kind of problem did they solve that Bitcoin didn't? Yeah. Um, well, stable coin is basically uh, a digital version of, of a, a fiat currency, or we can call it a digital proxy of, for example, the US dollar, um, meaning that you can exchange, again, P2P uh, from wallet to wallet, but you're exchanging something which is supposed to have which is supposed to be pegged to the dollar, meaning that whatever the, you know, the dollar value is not supposed to change at all. Well, we, you know, we saw instances where it, it may, but it, let's say in general, in theory, it cannot change. Well, I remember very well uh, the origins of stable coins. Um, uh, uh, Brock Pierce is, is one, uh, you know, famous entrepreneur in, in the space. And he, he is the first one who talked about, uh, the USDT tether, uh, he co-created it with uh, Craig Sellers, who was, I think at the time with MasterCoin, which was like one of the first altcoins that was in 2013 that MasterCoin was, was born. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I met them early on and, and I saw the reaction. So the first reactions was very negative. You know, the market was, you know, we don't want the dollar. We're here because we want Bitcoin. We want a parallel system. We don't, we don't, we don't want to go back. We don't want to go back to the dollar, but it was not so clear at first what was going to be the, the usage and the utility of, of Tether. But what became very clear is when people start trading and when people started want to move funds between exchanges, because in the, at the beginning, moving funds between exchanges was painful because, you know, if you, if you, you know, 
you know, exchanges were asking, for example, for five Bitcoin confirmations, right? And the Bitcoin network confirmation, each of them takes about 10 minutes. So five, five times is almost an hour. If you try to do <laughs> fast trading uh, and you have to wait one hour, then as you know, all the arbitrage, people were trying to get arbitrage uh, opportunities. So all this trading was impossible with, with uh, Bitcoin because it was too slow. Um, so people realize, well, if I send USD from one exchange to the other or from one wallet to an exchange, et cetera, that's first of all, is quicker. Uh, and secondly, there is no volatility in the price. So I think that was the key. That, that was the key. And of course, now you can talk about remittances and, and a broader, mm. a, a broader usage. But I think really the first, the first one that opened people's eyes was a, was a trading uh, arbitrage opportunities that it, it would, it would enable. Great. So let's talk about this thing that, I mean, you and a bunch of other people call open finance. Mm -hmm. So what is open finance and why does it matter so much? Well, there are a few definitions about open finance. First of all, uh, open finance is not only a, a crypto, uh, a cryptocurrency solution or cryptocurrency uh, domain. I mean, for example, in, 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 uh, in certain countries, you have seen uh, banks are being kind of asked to open up their their system, you know, APIs yeah. and so forth. So, so there are solutions out there for people to integrate more easily with the legacy banking system. Uh, obviously, in crypto, open finance is more associated to decentralized finance, to DeFi. Uh, I, I wrote a, a piece in uh, July 2020. So. Uh, was called the coded income model. It was just at the beginning of DeFi. I think at the time DeFi had a overall TVL, which is total value locked of about one or two billion, right? And it went up to you know eighty billion uh, about a year later uh, or so. So I was writing about the fact that DeFi. The main problem I, I saw with DeFi is that it's a very circular uh, and closed loop kind of system where crypto traders trade with other crypto traders. And they play different strategies and they make some yield, they make some money, et cetera. There, is no, there was no direct impact on the re, what we can call the real economy. You know, people every day having to pay loans, people having to pay to fund their own SME, their companies, their small business, whatever. So uh, I saw that as an, as an issue and I was thinking about um, just offering solutions about why don't we look at ways so that regular people, people are not necessarily crypto traders, take advantage of this liquidity and this flexibility of, De of DeFi. And, uh, and some companies have done so. I mean, we invested in one called Silta where they use DeFi platforms as the origin of the funding and then they finance uh, ESG conscious, uh, or for example, uh, photovoltaic farms, solar, solar panels, and so forth. So they, we see the beginning of a intertwining between real economy and the crypto economy. But DeFi, that was the main problem I had. And we saw that the problem has evolved into a much bigger problem is when we had the, the Luna crash, for example. Um, all these DeFi platforms that were relying on, on UST, that were relying on, on certain of these cryptos, they went down and they took down people who were actually putting savings, you know, mm -hmm. their regular savings in there. So it was it was actually... You know, it was actually the the other kind of the dangerous aspect of DeFi that actually 
has been the most notable to, to date. So we haven't seen yet a clear positive impact on, on people's lives, I would say. Uh, of course, some people have made money, uh, but again, to make money in DeFi, you need to be literate in finance, you know, because it's not so simple, most mm. of the trading strategies, and crypto. And you need to be literate in, in preserving your assets, you know, all these hacks that happen regularly. So I would say the bar is quite high uh, until now. Yeah. So, so basically talking about this kind of open finance thing that for the moment is very crypto versus crypto player. Mm -hmm, mm. I mean, too In much basically. Space, That's yeah. the big problem, yeah. The, the decentralized finance space. And, but it could be very useful for the, for the real world. Yeah, yeah, I believe. So what needs to mat basically what needs to happen mm. for this kind of bridge to really exist? And how far are we from that? Yeah, very good. Uh, a few things have to happen and it's interesting because Bitcoin in general um, gave, gave people an incentive to know more about monetary systems and where money comes from. And I think a lot of people who have gone into Bitcoin have discovered, you know, where actually money comes from, you know, um, basically created by banks when you, when you ask for a loan and, and, you know, and what's behind and how the Federal Reserve works and, and other central banks. So. That was the first step. So for DeFi, you need uh, basic economic lit literacy again, and then you need to learn about, uh, uh, I would say, because the UI, uh, I mean, the user friendliness of this platform uh, is very low. You know, it's not that easy. You know, if you look at Curve or you know, there are some DeFi platforms where they, it's, it's, it's clear that it's for people who understand DeFi. You know, it's not meant for people who just come and, and want to learn on, on, the, on the go. And, you know. So first is uh, improving UI. Secondly, is putting a lot of tools out there for people to learn about, about DeFi in general and crypto and, 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 and different strategies. So I think we need an overall large number of people to learn about this. But this has happened in other sectors, like, for example, you know, stock trading, you know, in the nineties, I was saying in the, in the late nineties, when all the internet stock was uh, the fury, right? Everybody wanted to go in. We, we had all of a sudden, a lot of people became day traders, right? And these people just learned about it. Um, and for example, even just owning a computer at the time made a difference, obviously owning a computer, having internet, etc. So we need to close more the digital divide today. Uh, obviously that's the first step. And then People have to be incentivized to, to learn about it. So there is, there is still an education process to happen. It could take a few years for uh, a, a big of a, a critical size, a certain critical mass of people to actually use DeFi to make it much more mainstream than it is today. Uh, I think, I think it, could, uh, it could happen. I would say, let's say in five years time, because you know, in crypto things go quite fast. Mm. I think in five years time we could have quite a large liquid market, hopefully safer uh, as well in the, in the process. I mean, if you think about it, it, I mean, it was one of the key narratives of the, the, this last cycle was actually this kind of centralized companies. So these lenders that were kind of saying, oh, yeah. we are the new banks. We give you a, yeah. a safe, we're safe and we give you a, a, a five to 10% yield while yeah. your bank gives you 0%. And they were basically they were doing the bridge between the normal people and this kind of complex, yes. uh, decentralized finance world. Yeah. And, 
so but it didn't work yeah basically every everybody blew up like and now we even have like genesis which is one of the biggest in the space like even them yeah that are in business since almost 10 years blowing up so so do you really think that do you really think that it's from decentralized finance that we're going to get the next whatever we'll say 100 million people or 1 billion people through crypto or do you think there is something else that's much more likely to bring normal people because there is the fact having to educate people on new things is one thing mm -hmm. but there is also a level of like understanding and technical kind of knowledge that a lot of people will probably never have for example bitcoin is the same like people need to be interested by money and try to understand what it is and all that stuff and if you love to invest and if you think about kind of wealth building and all that stuff like or, or preserving your wealth like it's very interesting but i still believe that most of the people most people don't even save money basically so or or, or don't save too much money and don't necessarily think about investing until pretty like later in their life okay, maybe the millennials now or Gen Z kind of thinking more and more about that. So like, do you really think that this kind of decentralized finance world is the one that, or, or kind of field or sector is the one that's going to bring crypto to the masses or, or, or is there something else? It, it, it looks, I mean, the, the other contender of course has been uh, NFTs, which has been a big narrative as well. I mean, to come back on on the centralized uh, platforms that you mentioned, you know, the one and the ones that, mostly have gone down, unfortunately, over the last year or so. Um, first of all, they were not DeFi, okay? This, to be clear, they were pretending to be DeFi. They, they were a black box. They were a black box where you send money a bit like a bank. You lose access to your money. You 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 give it away, as we saw now recently from the different court decisions. Yeah. Um, you give other people's control of your own funds, of your assets. They pretend they're going to do something sophisticated but actually they don't they do something risky to try to get to to get themselves more yield than they they're going to give you and there was this arms race i remember very clearly i mean if you take a snapshot of a year ago on coin market cap they had a a defi uh tab right and you had all the different yield that you could get on bitcoin for example uh, top one was maybe Nexo, second one was Celsius, and then you had uh, Voyager, you know, BlockFi. Most of these companies have, have had, you know, have had, uh, gone down. Um, Nexo still around, but the if you take a snapshot, you see that this kind of arms race to the highest yield was very risky because you know where does yield come from? I mean, in in DeFi, um, on certain specific platforms, you can understand. Uh, and usually it's an inflationary yield by, mm. by, by issuing more tokens. Or today there is a revenue share on trading, which is more, which is healthier, right? Um, so we, we needed that phase. I mean, it's always the same, you know, same as internet, same as early days of crypto. You need that phase of people trying and people failing. Of course, when people try and actually uh, do it fraudulently, that's a different matter, which, you know, the courts have to solve. But... Um, DeFi is not about giving your asset to someone else because if you use DeFi, your assets are basically on your wallet. I mean, yeah, of course you could get a um, kind of a, a proxy to the token because that's the way it works on many platforms. But basically you still see on the wallet something, right? So that's a big difference. I think that narrative 
that you were talking about, about this centralized platform was basically just marketing and, and them trying to get as much crypto they could from, from, from the market. Mm -hmm. that, that's all. Um, in terms of, I, I still think that what you mentioned, of course, is true today. There's still a lot of people have to learn. But yes, I think people will have less and less choice, really, because um, in order to try to fight inflation and so forth, you know, inflation was not an issue uh, a year ago. It's a big issue now. People have to find ways to to manage smartly and actively their their money. I think I think DeFi is still going to be uh, quite popular and quite successful in its you know what i call smart contracts i call it function centric systems meaning a smart contract is doing what it's supposed to do it's not there is no human element and that's a great thing about about it right it's like when you go on a smart contract and it goes through a process and the output is known it's deterministic mm -hmm. then there is no risk then there is you know the, of course the risk is that a smart guy you know finds a vulnerability etc but Let's say if you look at a smart contract that is working, you get what you're supposed to get. Uh, and no one can come and try to, to, to take it away from you, know, from you or et cetera. So I would say that's what is also attracting me to, to DeFi is the fact that it works on smart contracts, which are really, um, uh, you, you, cannot, you cannot really disrupt it. You cannot corrupt it. You know, it's an anti-corruption, uh, system that, that's great, and I, and I think more and more uh, projects and more and more overall systems in the world we start using smart contracts because of that because it's anti-corruptible in that sense. So you're talking about these smart contracts and these decentralized finance stuff, and we also mentioned a bit about these NFTs things that we're going to talk about later, and they've happened on. A platform called Ethereum, basically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which some people called a trustless application-based layer. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about Ethereum as a trustless application-based base layer, as a, as a, I'd say, open-minded but true Bitcoiner that you are? Um... Well, I mean, to, to be honest, I, I, uh, I liked Ethereum, you know, I remember very well as well reading the first time the Ethereum white paper early on. I like the idea. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an early Bitcoiner, but I've never had any issue with other, other crypto networks, but I would say we don't call, I mean, nothing is trustless to be clear. I mean, I think trustless is, is usually the wrong terminology. Um, trust minimizing, you know, as we say, it's like you reduce the trust that you need, but obviously we all know that Ethereum relies on, you know, different, different systems, different, uh, operators, you know, even, you know, validators, whatever nodes. I mean, you always rely on someone eventually or on a, on a, on a system somewhere. Uh, and if that system fails, I mean, for example, during the, let's say about a year ago, when everybody was trading, uh, you know, more than today, there was a huge volume, especially on DeFi platforms. Um, I remember when, uh, there were like pressure times where gas price was getting crazy, you know, like hundreds of dollars to do one transaction on Ethereum. I think that was a big failing of that particular network at the time, <clears throat> which has been, uh, you know, which, which Ethereum or uh, different actors on Ethereum have tried to solve and, 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 and the gas price is lower today, but it's to some respect, it's still, it's, it can be can quite high. So I would say 
Ethereum until now has succeeded in being the major network on which a lot of these applications are running. And one of the reasons is because they started early and they got a lot of good developers early on. So the other blockchains that came and are supposedly uh, Ethereum killers like Solana, um, I don't know, there are many out there, but they they need that time. They need that time to get the developers on board. They need that time for the platforms to mature, et cetera. So there's obviously a lot of catching up to do. So I would say at the moment, Ethereum is still, you know, and, and, and now, especially with all the L2s, right? Polygon, Arbitrum, mm. et cetera. It's still the, cho the, the, the network of choice for a lot of these applications and a lot of these developers, but, but I'm very open and I hope, uh, and I'm all for uh, competition. So I hope that the other blockchains that are coming, uh, are also going to provide great experiences and great applications for everyone because it's in the interest of the users, right? So, um, at the end of the day. We have been saying that for a long time, but at the end of the day, users don't care about the blockchain. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, just care that it's fast and that it's cheap, basic. Do you think users care about this decentralization thing or not? Most of them. Uh, they, I'm, I mean, some of, some users may not really understand why it is an advantage. But of course, until, you know, things like Celsius happen and then you realize, well, you know, that's not decentralized at all. You know, mm. my, my assets were completely taken away from me. So I would say at first, no, I'm, I'm, I'm again, there's always a problem with the, in the new industries is that we call it, for example, decentralized finance. Uh, but for users, it's, it, it's, it may, maybe the only thing they look at is the yield or, you know, they don't care. I don't think they care too much. I, I think. Again, it's a question of um, making sure that you get what you're supposed to get, you know. And, and that was, a, and, and if you look at it over the the past couple of years, that was a problem because when the yields got crazy and and people thought, oh, I can get 10, 20, 30 percent easily by doing nothing, by just putting these assets here and waiting for it to uh, to get more of it every every month or every day. Um, people start relying on it, you know, like funds and, yeah. you know, start making strategies. And when that went down, uh, yeah, that put into uh, a whole different light, the whole sector. But again, this happens in most um, new technologies. You have to go through these times where things are tested and, uh, and there was a lot of wealth creation and a lot of wealth destruction, which is very similar again to the internet years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and people learn from that. Yeah. You, you talked about competition and that competition is really good because it's better for the end users. Would you say that Bitcoin and Ethereum are competing or would you say that they can both live in the same world? Well, I mean, I would say, I don't, I don't see them competing that much. I would say today, a lot of the early crypto people have both, I would say they have Bitcoin. I mean, there are different, again, there are different use cases, right? Um, there are a few open finance or DeFi applications or Bitcoin, but it's not so easy because as, as we, as we know, if we learn a bit about Bitcoin, Bitcoin was not really created with the intention to be uh, a very programmable uh, type of, you know, let's say network or, or on a network on which 
you didn't need to have so many programs. And actually Ethereum was created, you know, with that objective, right? For as many programs as you can, or a language that was created for that, you know, solidity, et cetera. So I would say the early onset use the, the utility of both networks are very different. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are compatible. I don't, I don't see them competing so much. I mean, people are always talking about things like the flipping and all that. Mm. I, I'm not sure it matters that much because again, newcomers are going to focus too much on the price, right? Because a lot of newcomers, the only thing they realize, I mean, I've, I've been, for example, I've been teaching, uh, universities about, about blockchain. And I remember that sometimes just to get attention of the students, I start talking about the price. <laughs> uh, and that's when the students pay attention. When I say, look, uh, this is the uh, Ethereum ICO, you know, uh, 25 cents uh, an Ether, and this is the price today. And be, oh, okay, wow, great. So they focus on the price, right? When you have more experience, you focus on other things. You focus on security, decentralization, you focus mm. on what you can do with a network. So I think in, the, in that sense, no, I think they can both coexist uh, for as long as possible, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I mean, this speculation and kind of, kind of greed is actually a positive thing because it's what drives more and more people to the ecosystem. And every mm -hmm. time, even though there is a lot of wealth creation and their destruction, there is more and more people sticking mm -hmm. around and, and more Definitely. investment made and more basically money for entrepreneurs to build more innovation. And that's kind of how you, you build a new, a new sector, a new space. Yeah. Great. So one of the key innovation, thanks to Ethereum infrastructure, is the invention of NFTs mm -hmm. that we also call non-fungible tokens, which I believe you also are you're also keeping an eye on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's your definition of an NFT? Uh, I, an NFT is a unique asset. I think the main the main differentiator with other types of crypto and token, it's, it's, it's basically unique or meant to be unique. And, and it's a token with which you mostly have a, a kind of an emotional attachment. I mean, the first, the first wave of NFTs have been in the, in the art, in the collectible and the celebrities in the sports club and so forth. So there, that took everyone by surprise is, is the amount of people that it drove to blockchain that were completely um, oblivious to blockchain, people who didn't care at all. And then all of a sudden they are on blockchain because of NFT, because there is a, an artist or a celebrity they follow or, or a sports or an athlete and they, they see this or a brand, you know, and they see that this brand is issuing NFTs and they want to be part of that. Uh, and I think the surprising fact is the, the speed at which, you know, a lot of people have onboarded onto the blockchain because of NFTs. So yeah, we, we looked at it, you know, at, at, uh, at Coincilium, we looked at NFT very early. We saw it as a drive for adoption. Uh, we, we had our own collection. We invested in some companies that are, you know, uh, building NFTs. We also have, a, have done a couple of hackathons and one of them was called NFT Vision Hack. So I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great sector and still with a lot of, uh, opportunities and a lot of potential in the future. Uh, but of course, what I think is, is going to evolve beyond 
this collectible and etc. I think the next phase is what everybody is calling a tokenization. So basically tokenization of a variety of assets. And I think NFT is great because we're talking about unique assets and most financial assets are unique assets. So so I think NFTs could do well and and very big things in the in the financial world in general as well. Yeah. So what what would you say is the key innovation behind NFTs and why it's going to be basically so or it has the potential to be so big? Well, the key innovation is that all of a sudden you give um you give value to something that is um in theory maybe not so liquid in theory maybe not so common etc so things that were not really part of the crypto narrative because the crypto narrative of the of the let's say the since the ICO boom let's say so 2017 to uh well let's say to 2019 20 uh was really Uh, fungible tokens, uh, ICOs, ICOs, as, as you may remember, a lot of ICOs. And and that was purely for funding, purely for um, funding new projects, basically, right? But NFTs deal with things that may already exist. I mean, of course, you can do new art and you can create an NFT, or you can do a new book or a new movie or whatever, but you can also tokenize things that have existed for a long time. And some artists have done just that, you know, they, they have had pieces of you know works of art they had for 20 years and they cre they, they they create an nft from it so that's great you know you're transforming it's a real di digitalization that that we thought was coming early on with first the internet and then crypto i think we're going towards a real digitalization of basically everything <laughs> mm. i mean we were talking about this very early on but i think that's coming so basically I mean, through the internet, we had a digitalization of a lot of things, but the kind of, the kind of, how can I say that? The, the kind of truth was because it's digital, it can be replicated. Therefore, it doesn't have value because yeah. something that can be replicated infinitely doesn't have value. Yeah. And one of the key things with these NFTs, I mean, at least one part of it is that you can kind of assign scarcity to these kind of digital, I mean, It's kind of, I mean, the, the beginning of that is basically Bitcoin. If mm -hmm. we think about it, it's, it's how do you uh, create digital scarcity? Yeah. And yeah. now NFT is how do you apply that to a lot, of, a lot of other things? And at the same time, it's also how do you create liquidity around things that didn't have any before, such as, I don't know, for example, you're a restaurant and you have a loyalty program, and then you could like turn this into an NFT and then The, this 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 thing becomes valuable because depending how much the restaurant or company providing this NFT is providing value around that, it's gonna and depending how much you are kind of building towards your own mm -hmm. uh, 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 membership and 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 basically using the 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 restaurant or whatever it, it, it gives you, then you, you're going to kind of create more and more value into this thing. And the day you move to another country or something, you're going to be able to resell it. So basically yeah. it's about also potentially creating liquidity around things that were not liquid. And some people even say it's kind of like new GDP out there that kind of existed before, but could never really be translated into value. Yeah. And now around brands basically and, and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. 
You can also look at uh, fractionalization. You know, for example, if you have a, a very expensive painting or if you own a, an old car, uh, vintage car, and maybe it's very expensive to find, uh, too expensive maybe for one owner to buy it, then you fractionalize it into 100 NFTs, right? And then, then all of a sudden you have 100 owners, you have done a instant fractionalization. I mean, of course, there are legal matters to look at, mm -hmm. but technically you can do it. And um, and of course, it's easier to find liquidity around trading uh, uh, one hundredth of an expensive thing than the, than the whole amount. So yes, and the, there is a whole. I I usually refer to uh, what I call the tokenization layer. And you know, we have we we are we are used to the securitization layer. So basically, we we have been transforming a lot of things and mainly companies and and assets into shares, right? I mean, that's very common. This we've been doing for a century or more, right? But now we are moving into tokenizing things. So again, it's another layer and it can be on top of securitization because of course you can tokenize shares, but it can be on top of anything. You can tokenize a building if you want to, and a building can be tokenized without going through shares. You can be tokenized directly. Uh, you know, each brick is one NFT, each, each room is one NFT, it doesn't matter, right? So, and for this kind of use cases, you need NFTs because you, you, if you tokenize into ERC20 or, you know, fungible tokens, every token will be the same. But in the case of a building, each room is different, each floor is different, each, you know, so, so this is a great thing about NFTs, that it brings this variety of use cases. Uh, and, and that's why I think the potential is is enormous because in reality, most things are different. <laughs> so you're saying the potential is enormous. How big is the potential for this NFT thing? Uh, the whole economy. I mean, like you were saying, you know, GDP, I mean, uh, banks, central banks, governments may decide to tokenize, I don't know, uh, uh, Buildings, tokenize uh, uh, institutions, tokenize assets, tokenize I don't know gold, commodities, uh, energy. I mean, you th that. I mean, I really, really, we're going to the stage where the tokenization layer becomes ubiquitous in the sense that you know we are used now to this kind of digital layer because we're using everyday internet, mobile, etc. But but the financial application of it is still very small, you know, because for example, you're trading stock, but again, you're trading stock through legacy systems. You're not trading stock directly NFT to NFT, etc. You're trading real estate, but again, you actually have to go and do the notary work and, you know, so, so we're still in the intermediation. So the technology, the internet, and, and to some extent blockchain has brought quicker, faster, cheaper intermediation but it's still not the real thing. It's still intermediation. Yeah. If you tokenize, then you get to the stage where, you know, that's why Bitcoin in certain ways has not yet produced what everybody thought about peer-to-peer -peer payments because real peer-to-peer -peer payments means the country where you live in has to accept Bitcoin as a currency, right? And this is today, you know, we have El Salvador and to some extent, some other countries are accepting Bitcoin, but still we go through the legacy pipes, you know? So if we move to real tokenization, then that's gonna become a, a layer 
people live in and, and to some extent, uh, you know, metaverse is supposed to bring us to a stage where we live in a kind of digital world. But I think tokenization is actually, is going to have more impact uh, than the metaverse for that uh, use case. So, so what needs to happen for this NFT to re NFT thing to recreate really a revolution? You're saying basically kind of countries embracing it, like what, like kind of accepting this in the law or what, yeah, what does, what course. does, what, what do we need to, where do we need to get to, for this to kind of, kind of release the potential of this, but true the, potential of this NFT Yes, thing? but if you think about it, um, accepting into law is not that difficult because we are used, again, we have been doing it for uh, centuries to deal with what we call virtual assets. You know, virtual assets in a way, shares of a company is a virtual asset because obviously a share of company doesn't really exist. It's something you agree, we agree, a third party like a notary or a state agrees exist, you know, but a share in Apple in a company is just something that there is a whole construct around that tells us this exists, but, but it's not a physical thing, right? Um, it, it, so we are used to live in a world of virtual assets and actually, even if you if you read about anthropology, it's something that comes from even two, three thousand years ago, where you had temples that were storing gold, and people were using a coin representing that gold, which nobody sees because it's behind vaults, etc. So we're used about that. So I think in terms of law, uh, it shouldn't be a huge leap to go from where we are to NFTs being accepted as another form of virtual assets, right? Um, you need, of course, the infrastructure. So you need institutions starting to deal with NFTs more in a technical matter, meaning that maybe a public institution needs to understand you no know, uh, security of assets, of digital assets, wallets, and so forth. But I think I think we're going there, and it's a trend that will happen anyway. Because of course, if you look at CBDCs, which uh, although I'm not a fan of. The good thing about CBDC is that it will create a public, uh, a public force, you know, public mm. human resources that are actually familiar with uh, digital assets and, and push uh, people in, towards in, that. Yeah. Yes, and Gonna using wallets and so forth. Yeah. So, what are the key industries and kind of businesses or business sectors that you see the most impacted by this? by these NFTs in the, in the future? Well, again, I, I think all of them will, but in terms of which one are going to go fast, faster towards it, um, uh, those that are used to deal with uh, securitization, like uh, stocks, you know, stocks trading, re real estate, because in real estate for a long time, we had REITs, um, yeah. trusts around real estate, we're used to paper representing anything uh, as as real estate, for example. So, I think um, I think stock trading, real estate, and uh, well, we were discussing. You know, you were saying loyalty program. Yeah, it's a good example. But I was think brands in general have already embraced in a way NFTs. Many of them. Um, so that will go further. But again how are they using it will differ because right now brands are just issuing collectibles. So they are, they're playing with the first uh, level of NFTs, I would say, but real tokenization will, will come a bit later when they understand the, 
the potential and the fact that it can become, you know, everyday life type of application of, of, of this technology. Yeah. So what's, what's something that, that you think is really important about NFTs that we haven't talked about today? I think what is really important to solve with NFTs is the fact that um, NFTs is only, I mean, technically, the token you have in your wallet gives you access to something, right? And usually that something is on IPFS and sometimes on Amazon or whatever. So I think that's where the important aspect technically has to be solved is that to make sure that people who own NFTs cannot be, uh, you know, that, that mechanism, that system cannot be too fragile so that uh, easily easily people can change things. Like for example, if a collection, if I own an NFT, I mean, again, in the future, not everything is going to be linked to an image, of course, but it may be linked to a, a certificate of some kind, right? So you don't want the issuer to easily change that or, 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 to, or someone else, a third party come and change that. As we know, this has happened before, right? So, so that system overall has to be secured uh, to make sure that Again, NFTs in the future are are safe for everyone to use. <coughs> Great. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry. Let's talk about the crypto minefield. So you've been through many crypto cycles, and mm -hmm. to say the least, this industry is the definition of a minefield. We could think that with the maturity, it becomes less risky. But what happened last year actually shows that it's not really the case yet. Mm -hmm. <coughs> So how did you manage to not only survive, but strive in the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, the, you're right, you're right. The cycles are, are, are still there. We have, um, we have had extremely uh, positive cycles. Um, one of them, for example, was 2018, where, you know, there was a great awakening to, to uh, tokens in general and a lot of large organizations and Many of those became our, our clients when we we're doing a lot of advisory at the time. That was really a great revenue generating activity for, for us and also helped us build uh, our, our crypto treasury as well. So in the down cycle, um, the, the pattern has been the same for, I would say, the three major cycles. The first cycle that I, I've, I've lived through was 2013, 2014. So 2013, Bitcoin price goes to about $1,000 plus. And then 2014, early 2014, MTGOX goes down. Price goes back down to 250. Uh, and then we had very two slow years, I would say. Until, until summer 2017, it was really very slow. And there is always this correlation between price and sentiment. So when Bitcoin price is low, much less interest, much less liquidity, much less overall uh, interest in the sector, right? So we we have seen this, and this happened again after the ICO the ICO hype cycle 2019, and it's happening now, uh, which we now call kind of a crypto winter, right? But as you were saying, more and more people come and more and more people stay. So the, so the industry has become stronger in that sense that you, we have always newcomers, but out of these newcomers, some will go away because they're not interested, but many will stay. Um, but in a way, of course, that makes the numbers. I mean, one of the reasons why I would say the, the fiasco or the debacles that we saw recently in the last few months have been so 
the numbers are, are staggering is because overall the market is much bigger. Overall, the valuations are much bigger. So of course, we're talking now about easily about billions of dollars. And if you look at uh, 2016, uh, you know, we're talking millions of dollars, you know, the different scales um, in terms of valuation, in terms of daily volumes, et cetera. And today is billions because every day billions are traded and, and many, we have many, many crypto projects with billion dollar market cap. So we see the same pattern of kind of de-risking, people going back to more reassuring type of assets, going away from risky yields, going away from risky strategies. Uh, we usually, I mean, we, we are, when I talk about uh, Concilium uh, as a company, um, we don't take crazy risks. We we have a very, um, uh, uh, you know, the the only risk we take really is into going very early betting on entrepreneurs. That that's a risk we take, and and that's the one we believe we are, we have to take because this is where there is value can be created. Mm. But we don't take risk in terms of uh, trading and things like that. So we we like to go early, precede on on. Entrepreneurs we feel are very good, brilliant, have talent, and and then we wait for that to mature. So in that sense, actually, hype or no hype, that doesn't change. You know, we made five investments last year, um, but these investments are still, I would say, very reasonable even uh, today. Uh, but of course, today we have more opportunities because money is more expensive, valuations are lower, etc. So so we just continue doing what 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 we've been doing. So. What are the few criteria that you focus on when you decide whether or not to invest in a project mm. in order to minimize the chances of getting burnt? Well, I mean, like I would say, we we look at the market, market opportunity. Of course, there, I think that's a basic match that we want to see that we both believe in entrepreneurs and us, we both believe in the same direction of the market and where that project, that application could be in the in the future, in the uh, its positioning in the market. So, if the market is extremely uh, as as a lot of potential, then then we 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 want to go there. What is very important usually is to anticipate quite a long uh, runway because the markets mature at different speed, and it can be slower than everybody thinks it will be. So, we we like to look at markets that we think are going to be strong, maybe. Uh, three years from now, you know, two, three years from now. It's difficult to predict much further in crypto because, you know, things change very fast. Um, but of course, the main criteria, criterion is the team. We really need a strong team. Uh, the chance now is because we have been in this space for a long time, we are usually connected to the team somehow. You know, for example, some can be spin-offs of previous projects that we know. Some have members of teams that we know we have worked with before, et cetera. So we usually have some kind of connection with the teams we invest in, and that helps us in the in the trust factor. Um, but you know overall overall it's there there is obviously still a very risky um, activity, and therefore the best way to kind of minimize that is is to invest in various opportunities, different markets uh, and and yeah. And and hope that we actually identifying the good ones for the for the future. Yeah. What's your biggest fuck up in the crypto market? Because <laughs> what what I kind of realized is, I mean, 
especially in these kind of markets that are very uh, crazy, volatile, risky, mm. often the kind of success is also linked to kind of failures and previous failures and learning. Yeah, yeah, of course. So basically what's something that you want to talk about that you're saying, look, like I've done really well in the last 10 years, but this is also something that went really wrong or... Well, I mean, all, I would say like most investors, we um, and this is some of them are, are pre-concilium because, you know, initially we were investing uh, 2013, for example. Um, there were some opportunities to invest in companies and and uh, I, I didn't, you know, I, either I didn't invest or I wasn't quick enough to invest because sometimes the round could, could stop quicker than, than we expect. Um, so there are some big projects that are today very large that that we could have invested very very early on right at like one million rounds and so forth um and but i say this is common to most investing firms or most investors in general that you miss out on a, a few a few big ones um but i think the overall of course there is a bit of a survival bias in this industry because for example there are also many projects that went down <laughs> quite in flames and there are also many for example crypto funds that went in flames mm. so we are very so of course we are trying we're trying to maximize the value here but we, we people have to be conscious that there has been a lot a lot of companies burned to the ground and and I would say even worse you know with legal problems and so forth so in that sense you, your term of survival was quite right, <laughs> um, but of course we're trying to, um, to we're trying to do much better than surviving. Um, so yeah, so the the problems or the things that we have missed, again, most more like preconcilium times. A few big projects, you know, for example, I knew the the Ledger team very early on. We spoke to them before they were Ledger, and at some point there was an investment proposal, and that was surprisingly quickly taken by a French VC that I didn't expect, right? Um, and so we we basically uh, d didn't invest, uh, but, and, and, and Ledger has become a great company with, with uh, great success, you know, but this happens to, to most, uh, to most investors out there. And uh, we will, we will not have a hundred percent success rate, obviously, like, like uh, anyone in, in choosing the type of investments, but I think, um, Overall, we have done well. We have we have got some very you know very successful ones as well, and hopefully even um, recent investments could be we think have have a lot of potential. So so for you, kind of the big biggest mistakes are more kind of missed out opportunities than yeah yeah, yeah. than actually investing in the wrong things. Well, investing in the wrong things, you know, we we have never. Don't don a, a kind of all in, right? We've always invested, uh, I don't know, a, a tenth or a fifth of our mm. of our budget or whatever. So, so investing in the wrong thing, of course, you know, it happens all the time. But if we lose a, a, a reasonable, reasonably small amount of money, it's part of the life of any investor. So, no, we we don't have any major, you know, we we haven't we've never invested, let's say. Uh, uh, millions of dollars in a company that went down. No, mm -hmm. no yeah. we, again, we invest very early stage. So we, we try to, we try to invest, optimize a ratio of, even if we put only a hundred thousand, 200,000, we, we still 
try to get a good, uh, a reasonably good stake and, and as well, uh, one where there's a very large potential. Yeah. So what's the most important lesson that you've learned when it comes to investing in general? Mm. I think the most important lesson is to be quite open-minded and there are some projects that succeed that are in general, maybe if, if you look at it in a very vanilla way, you, you may not feel that they will succeed. Right. Mm. So I think, and, and everybody comes with their own baggage, right? Feelings and, and, and also baggage about what you think has been successful before. Right. And, yeah. and, and the problem is that entrepreneurs come with the same thing. So sometimes they, they try to copy concepts that have worked before so that investors think, okay, this is like the consensual, you know, I think that's, that's the problem is that consensual investments usually don't work, you know, like, and, in a way, we've seen it with, with F, you know, FTX has managed to get people on board, like sovereign funds and things like that. Why? Because it looked like a consensual type of investment with all the right boxes were ticked, etc. Mm. And then you have someone, an invest, uh, sorry, an entrepreneur who comes with something extremely out of the box, out of the ordinary. But if he's really true to himself and it's something that he really believes in, then I think that's you know, all other criteria being right, but that could be an interesting opportunity. And these are not easy to, to, to find and not easy to identify because they may go against the consensual approach to uh, what a, a, a safe and a, and a potentially successful investment is. So we need to keep an open mind and act, and that's something that can be done only by, you know, different characters and, and, and not being only one to look at it, you know, we, you know, um, so, so yeah, that, that's, I think that that's my big lesson is like to look beyond the common type of, uh, what, what should be successful in, in, in general. That's really interesting because some, some big investors actually say that investing is a very personal thing. Hmm. So obviously, as you're saying, there is all this kind of bias that you need yeah. to be kind of aware of, but it's much more difficult. It's much easier said than done basically. Yeah. And, uh. And yeah, so so it's a so, so on one hand you have some big investors saying it's a very personal thing. On the other hand, basically understanding this thing and understanding that basically alone, you're much more likely to kind of follow your bias and so therefore be less good. Yeah. So. So what's kind of like the, what's the kind of number of people you should interact with or team up with to like to make these investment decisions and like how do you? I mean, let's take a concrete example like. Maybe sometimes you were with your, with other people making a decision and you were not agreeing with them. Mm -hmm. So maybe you didn't want to do that investment, but you yeah. ended up going because maybe you're three people and there's two people going for it. So how do you deal with uh, that? And what's the... In our, in our, <laughs> in our case, we, we wouldn't go because we need kind of unanimous decision, but... Everyone, every, okay. Yeah, okay. But, but of course that's up to whatever kind of investment committee governance you want to adopt. I mean, you, you can, two out of three could work. I mean, but we usually have to be all agreed on, on our board, but there, there, obviously there are other solutions out there. I would say if you have a, a variety of background in the team is great. You know, people from different backgrounds, people bring different things to the table that, that always helps. Um, 
uh, we, yeah, I mean, we, again, we may not agree on something that, that can be good, or we may agree on something that is maybe less performing than, than we hope to, but I think it's good to have the discipline of, um, not really looking back too much on that, you know, I mean, we can look back maybe for, uh, our own, um, performance kind of, um, interest, but not looking back in any kind of, a uh, personal way, like, oh, I, you, I told you we should have done so, or you know, this is not, you know, investing has to remain a professional activity in that sense. I mean, and in some crypto funds, we could see that's a problem because a lot of crypto funds have come from uh, people who have done very well, extremely well on one or two projects, right? And because they have uh, done extremely well, they have accumulated enough uh, wealth, funds, digital assets, whatever, to actually create a structure and call it a crypto fund. The problem is they may not have the background of professionally investing and they may not have the experience of professionally investing. And therefore the investment becomes, I like this, let's go, you know, <laughs> a bit quick, yeah. you know, a bit, no, no criteria, no, you know, uh, gut feelings, etc. And and uh, yeah, and then maybe, and maybe that's, I mean, in my opinion, maybe that's not the best way. Maybe you, you should still stick to some, you know, uh, professional way of investing. There, there is no, there is no secret sauce. I mean, obviously, because otherwise, you know, everybody would be good at it. I mean, one reason why there is no secret sauce is because a lot of it is to do with the environment. And as we saw, for example, when there's a mass, massive shift of environment, especially macro environment, like, like happened a few months ago, like we go from free money, um, uh, sub 1%, uh, um, uh, borrowing costs and crazy, you know, crazy things like that. Uh, everyone piling on to tech stocks, etc. Mm. And then we go complete opposite all of a sudden, high inflation, high borrowing costs, uh, stock, stock, um, tech stocks going down. Uh, bonds going back, you know, crazy macro massive changes. Adapting to that is not easy. Seeing that you need to change the way you invest is not easy. Seeing that you need to make, you know, 100, 180 degree turns. And obviously not necessarily for us because we are focused on blockchain. And again, our investment rationale is quite simple, you know, we'll go pre-seed, et cetera. But I would say if you're actively managing funds, this was a killer year, killer year for most funds, even even crypto funds. I mean, I saw the performance. There was a report. Um, it was negative double digits for like all crypto assets, right? So almost very very difficult to get any anything positive or not as negative as as you can. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So you said that <clears throat> this investing thing needs to stay professional, and but it's probably a passion at the same time. So what are the key passions that you have beside investing? And how do you balance them, these passions with your career? Uh, well, you know, I, I've, I've always been quite, I mean, my, unfortunately maybe for some, but my, my professional life has taken a lot on my life for a long time. And it's not nothing actually related to crypto, even before I was, mm. I was doing investments before uh, for example, the period I was saying, 2004 to, uh, 2008, for example, uh, in Asia, 
And basically, I was um, when you do investment in, in private equity, you you meet people any time of the day. You know, you you don't worry about weekends, evening, etc. So I I kept that kind of professional mixed kind of life. So I don't I I, I don't I don't think I have any major passion that has any influence on 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 the way I invest or or anything like that. I mean. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I I like sports. I like, yeah, I like sport. I like reading, uh, but it's it's it goes it goes easily into that kind of my my schedule and and it's not. Uh, I would say I would say it's um, we all grow and mature in different ways, right? So I would say, for me, physical activity and. Uh, certain sports and 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 reading as well certain interests help to grow and mature uh, along and and i guess that gives a bit of more uh depth when looking at investing because again you know investing is is about what we think about the future and you cannot think about the future without a very a very good understanding of what's happened in the past so i would say that's how reading helps a lot on, on that um but again keeping an open mind because even if you know a lot about the past, future can surprise as well. So, yeah. So I don't know nothing really special, uh, but just uh, trying to have a balanced life. But unfortunately, for a long time, it has been very professionally uh, oriented. <laughs> so, how do you manage your personal relationships, and I mean, even growing a family when you're so business wired or investing wired, and kind of everything is about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, luckily, um, luckily, <laughs> luckily, I can discuss this kind of uh, things with my family. Uh, my kids have known about Bitcoin very early. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes they ask me about prices and things like that. I mean, it's, so the kids' it's college right. fund is in college fund is in Bitcoin since uh, since a long time. Yeah, yeah, funds. Yeah, funds have been in crypto for a long time. Yes, uh, but it's good to. I think it's good for them to know to know about it and and to at least at the moment they are not actually doing anything with crypto, but they are at least it's in their mind. Mm. Um, yeah. So no, I mean I'm I'm lucky in the sense that it's not a problem. We 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 openly uh, discuss these kind of things and uh, uh, of course not details about any investment, but crypto in general. Uh, and it's it's good to be able to speak about it, yeah. And of course, a lot of my friends, as well, right? Because you know, you start living in crypto, and then suddenly a lot of your friends come from this sector. Mm. So yeah, it's yeah. And but but I must say that in Singapore, I find a lot of people that I don't know are actually talking about crypto. I overhear them in in transport, in the gym, etc. Wow, you know, it's I. That's a big difference between now and you know, of course eight, nine years ago when crypto was not such a mainstream thing. And uh, now everybody has an, has, a, has an opinion on crypto, which is, which is fun and it's interesting. Yeah, it's great. What's your definition of success in life? Uh, I, would, I, would say, I would say success in life for me, uh, it's uh, at some point just, just feeling happy about Nothing precise in general, maybe overall. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just feeling good that 
things are going well. It's not a number. I mean, I don't think numbers are that important. It's not a, it's not a kind of status or anything, but feeling things are going well. Uh, I, I've read, I've read somewhere that people say to be happy, you need to not have too much debt, you know, like, like living a life where you don't push yourself too much so that you're, you, you're not, uh, um, you're not always feeling like there is something missing, basically, mm. that you're trying to achieve something. I mean, I don't feel like I've achieved, um, that I've reached a, a certain level of achievement. That's not the case. When I say happy, I mean just happy in general and, and personally. Yeah, I think that that's a successful life when you feel good, you know. And and uh, like everyone, I had times where I was not feeling good. So you appreciate when things are, are going well. And of course, I'm like, I would say like uh, people in this space, people who, who live in countries like Singapore, obviously I'm privileged. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not like uh, I, 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 I'm very happy to be where I am and, and, uh, and, and at this stage in life. So last questions. Uh, what's something that you believe in that most people would not agree with? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, So initially that was Bitcoin. That was easy. <laughs> 10 years ago, that was easy. That was an easy one. Um, it's interesting because even 2016, you know, after the, the MT Gox and then 2015, I remember was such a low for Bitcoin that people really didn't want it. Um, and I was telling a lot of friends, you know, this is a good time to buy, you know, this is maybe $500, $600 and nobody wanted it. So at that time it was very clear it was Bitcoin. Today, nothing special. I mean, I'm not specifically, I'm not specially attracted by, you know, UFOs and things like that. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, I don't know if I believe something uh, that, that really, yeah, I don't, I, I don't see anything that is that, that, uh, as controversial as Bitcoin was at the time. <laughs> so, so you're saying 2016, good time for Bitcoin to buy. 2023, January, is it a good time for, for people to buy Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, and, and some people have been buying now for, for a few months. Uh, yeah, of course. I think, uh, I again, there are fundamental reasons and there are kind of, you know, FTX, in in many ways was not a crypto was using crypto uh, as a way to uh, initially build wealth and unfortunately there uh, you know for some reasons uh, destroy a lot of wealth but the this was not a crypto thing in 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 many ways it was not a uh, so i would say fundamentally fundamentally there's still a lot of upside for crypto because there are still many goals to to be reached in terms of adoption, in terms of te technology, etc. So I think uh, it's still a good time to buy Bitcoin. Um, and, and we should see more and more people understand that Bitcoin is a bit, it's quite different from other crypto because it still has a very special, special utility, you know, storage of value. And also it still has the, the fact that it's, It's not run by a company. It's not run by, you know, yeah. So, so I guess this, the fact that it's still a parallel mechanism, parallel system, decentralized, etc., cetera, uh, really makes a difference compared to a lot of 
pseudo crypto businesses that were here just to make money and unfortunately uh, too fast and 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 got many of them got burned so yeah i think i think especially bitcoin is still a good time to buy for for that for that for that reason if there was a summary or key takeaway that people should remember from today what would it be well that i think i think the lesson that i got from this is that things take time mm. and that you you have to go through the rough patches you know i mean it it seems obvious because now everyone when bitcoin goes down you have like 100 twitter posts saying um you know holding or holding but holding is is going down it's not it's not a straight line you know it's not everybody's like oh i buy bitcoin in 2014 15 and then i just wait for it to go up because there are a lot of down downward moments a lot of moments where you doubt because uh people come back to you saying oh you see i you see i told you this was a scam <laughs> you know when bitcoin is uh, goes from uh, 64000 to 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 16 i you see I told you I was right. Bitcoin was not a good idea, right? Yeah. So you have to live through this, you know, takes time, live through it. And it's actually, um, yeah, it's, uh, if, if the, if it's the right thing, like I, bit, I think Bitcoin was the right thing, uh, and hopefully it's proving it uh, every day. Yeah. Then you have to continue, continue working on it and, uh, and focus on that. And there is so much things and, and great innovations that happen overall in the crypto space. So keep your an open mind for that. Keep an open mind and uh, and help those that are that are building very very uh, positive beneficial thing in the in the in this space. Awesome! Thank you so much for your time, Eddie. Where can the audience find you and connect with you? Uh, so I'm on on Twitter. I'm. Uh, Web3 Eddie, which is spelled W-E-B-3-D-D-Y. And I'm on LinkedIn, just my name, uh, Eddie Travia. Yeah. And then Coincilium is at coincilium.com, C-O-I-N-S-I-L-I-U-M. For the quick story, we had the coin ticker. Yeah. We still have it in London, but we, we never had it uh, in the U.S. <laughs> Awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. Please smash the like button and give us a feedback in the comments. Highlights will be posted on YouTube, on Twitter, Substack, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So follow us there to get exclusive access to special content and promo codes. I'll see you all in the next episode.